I'm Zach Dunlap, pastor of Multisite at Birmingham and Berkeley First. Welcome to Church Folks, the new podcast where we interview folks from our church community about who they are and what God is doing in their lives. Throughout the Bible, people are encouraged to bear witness to what they have seen and heard. Continuing in that tradition, this podcast offers a forum for people to get to know one another and be inspired. Our hope is that the stories of these church folks empower you to share your stories, to inspire others, and to be a part of beloved community together. I'm here today with Matteo Pesolacqua. Matteo, you and your wife have three kids. I'm interested, as a father of four myself, what helps you stay sane and focused? How do you balance life, work, and family? So your your timing on this is impeccable because my wife and I are currently trying to figure out what the best way to establish the fact that while we want to be accessible to our kids emotionally, um, personally, you know, on every level, we often also have to figure out how to exact the fact that like the authority rests with us and mm. not them. And so we're kind of in the throes of that now. I mean, all that being said from the big picture of, of life and work and being a dad, um, you know, when you, I think when it's meant to be, and I think sometimes meant to be is dictated both by yourself and and a higher power, whether that be God or fate or anything, it's easy. Even when it's hard, it's easy because you kind of accept the fact that you don't have a choice but to succeed in those fields, right? So being a dad, you don't have a choice but to succeed in that. And it kind of makes it easy because it takes all the other options off the table. You don't have to think about, well, should I be a bad dad today or should I be a good bad or a good dad today? <laughs> and it's like, yeah, it'd be a good dad. Or same thing goes with being a husband or a professional. So I think Jessica and I, we both have a very selfless approach to it, but not out of righteousness. It's just kind of been a natural evolution as we've had children together and built our lives together. Now I will tell you that Jessica is the one who taught me that, you know, that's, she is, she is the one responsible for kind of instilling that trait in me and, and motivating me to find it within myself to be like that. Um, so, but I think that's, you know, that's kind of the answer to the question is it's, it's hard, but it's not because kind of once you accept that it's, there's no other way for it to be. It's it becomes very natural. Mm. Do you find being a, a, a dad and being there emotionally for your kids and also, you know, leading them and encouraging them and everything that, that over time that becomes natural if you do it regularly enough, often enough day in and day out. It's tough. I mean, I think the, I think the short answer is yes, but I've, I guess I've also seen examples where, I guess I hate to say it like this, but you've either got it or you don't. Um, I, I think it would be very hard to train yourself to be, well, I don't want to say a good parent, but to, to accept the 
all of the roles that come with being a parent, you know, emotionally, financially, uh, physically, all that stuff. And even if you've got it, it's, it's still something that has to be worked at and can be difficult. And if you don't have it, maybe that's the true test of, of bring, of rising to the occasion. Um, I would like to say that Jessica has always had it. I, I didn't know if I had it. Our first child, Avery, um, I would say was a bit of a surprise. She was not a total surprise because there's kind of no such thing <laughs> regarding how children come into the world. But when we had found out that Jessica was pregnant, I went on a three-month, you know, Excel sheet of Rama trying to figure out how are we going to afford this kid? What are we going to blah, 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 and all this stuff. And then one day I was just like, you know what? Whatever this kid needs, I'll get it. If I got to yeah. buy it, I'll buy it. If I got to steal it, I'll steal it. If I Whatever this kid needs, I'll get it. We'll be fine, right? I have no choice in the matter but to provide for this child. So once I did that, I was, you know, I was good. And I think that that's something that kind of repeats itself with other kids and other responsibilities as it comes to your kids. Like you have to be there for your kids. You know, they need that. And I'm, I think Jessica and I have done a good job of that, you know, with our kids, you know, we want to be accessible. You know, we grew up with great families, you know, neither of us would ever have a complaint about our childhood, but our, our moms and our dads played, somewhat more traditional roles than what we're playing in, in that, you know, there are days where my kids give me a hard time that I would have never given my father and the same thing with Jessica. And so for us, it's, it's kind of the give and take of it's because they're comfortable with us. It's because we've, we've encouraged their ideas and their dialogue. Um, and sometimes you get it whether you want it or not. And so now we're kind of starting to work on, okay, how how do they know that like everything's still cool, but we're the boss? Yeah, uh, and that's that's kind of a big, big challenge we're working on right now. So, yeah, I get that too. Uh, you know that that uh, like sarcasm is hilarious, but here's the line: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you went from being sarcastic to deeply offensive to your mother. Yeah, <laughs> that is not cool. <laughs> My daughter once, when we got into an argument, you know, reminded me that we're living in a free country and that, you know, she can say what she wants. And I told her that the free country starts on the other side of the sidewalk, but on this side, it's a dictatorship because I own this land. It's like, and you'll do what I want you to do. That's a great line. I like that. Yeah. So the free world's out there in here is my house. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That does not mean that we don't care and that we won't take yeah. your opinions into <laughs> yeah. consideration, but ultimately when the decision has to be made, that's a mom or dad decision. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Totally. Uh, Vocationally, you are in the real estate world as a senior property manager. What excites you about real estate and what's your least favorite aspect of the work? So my interest in real estate stems from, I got my master's in urban studies and planning, which is more of the, on the, the conceptual end of real estate development from the perspective of cities kind of establishing their standards on what kind of development they want, how they want to interact with the community, how does it fall within their master plans. 
So realizing that in most cities in the Midwest, the developer had the power, I wanted to learn real estate so that I could work for a developer someday and maybe get two cents of influence at the table and, you know, make the developer think it was their great idea to build, you know, an urban centric type of development. Um, so that's when coming out of grad school, I started to kind of look for more real estate oriented work. Um, and that to this day is still what interests me about it, you know, is wanting to get um, to work with different types of revitalization, you know, different types of urban design in the line of work that I'm in now. I really don't have a lot of control over the physical development of space. I really more or less have control over the current state of something that exists. So what I've tried to do, at least with my properties, even if they're traditional, traditionally suburban is, you know, work with walking paths, work with different paint schemes outside of the building, you know, make it stand out in some way, shape or form so that it, it at least catches your eye. It interacts with you. I mean, for me, the way our interaction with the physical environment is very subconscious, but it's also very influential at the same time. And it's always intriguing to me of something that you would take for granted day in and day out about walking in and out of an office building. But if it might be a paint color, it might be a lobby redesign, it, it, it might be something where it's so grandiose you have no choice but to accept it like some of the older buildings downtown. Sure, sure. But that's my current line of work. I mean, I've tried to kind of bring that into what I do now. Um, the downside of of being of being in real estate with my goals and aspirations is you have got to have a lot of resources and a lot of influence to do the kind of things I want to do. Um, and I don't feel as though I have those. Um, and I don't know if, if what I'm currently doing is enough to get me there. Mm -hmm. So I think that answers the question, but yeah. I'll leave that up to you. But, but in a perfect world, uh, for a city, let's say, for example, like the idea would be to have kind of a vision of, of what is possible, a vision of the culture and the community that we're trying to create, and then to work everything off of that vision. So when proposals and stuff are coming in, you're saying, okay, well, how does this compare to the vision? Is it a thumbs up? Is it a thumbs down? Do they need to tweak these things? But you're always kind of anchoring things back on that like that master plan document or that, that vision of what's possible. Yeah. So it's tough because I think everybody agrees in planning, but it's, but so much of our world is here and now. So it's very easy to say, well, yeah, we've got this plan, but this one Island of a development is really cool. And really, and if it doesn't meet the plan, it, well, okay, but it, it's really cool. And it, it's this. So let's do this. It's very hard to maintain. It's, it's hard to maintain that plan. It's hard to maintain that vision. I've, I've been a, I sit on the Berkeley DDA and my whole purpose and goal with that has been to try to like establish a plan and to establish some sort of standard for Berkeley, not in a prohibitive sense, but in a sense that, you know, we have, I think there's a lot of communities that would kill to have the type of downtown we have. Totally. And the bones are there for us, you know, we just need to kind of establish some standards. I'm not saying Royal Oak standards or Birmingham standards, but something that's ours, something that's unique and something we can point to when someone says, well, you know, we want to, we don't, we want to tear down Berkeley Methodist for an Arby's. 
well, that's not going to happen. <laughs> and here's all the documentation and the plan to back it. Yeah. You know? So it's not just a one-off decision. It's, right. it's intentional. Right. And again, it's, it's, it's hard for cities to, not just cities, it's hard for anybody to take a look at a long-term plan and try to keep everything in line with that because you are going to get a million things that have absolutely nothing to do with that plan, as cool as they may be. You know, and then you're, you're in that situation to say, okay, are we going to stick to the plan or are we going to make an exception? And if we do, why? Because there's going to be another exception consideration right around the corner. So, yeah, I think that's, you're exactly right. That's not true just for cities. That's true for families and churches and individuals. And, you know, we can have this, this particular vision of where we're headed or, or goals that we want to achieve, but then something comes out of left field, whether it's an opportunity or, uh, you know, cancer diagnosis or, and, you know, unexpected baby on the way or yeah. whatever. And, and all of a sudden, oh, we're, you know, adapting and, uh, you know, we, we still might be holding on to that, that vision. Um, but it, it changes, it, it evolves. It's, it's a living document. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I was in a construction meeting once, and when I walked out, I turned to some of my maintenance guys, and I said, we are going to be on plan E 20 minutes into this thing. I was like, A and B are going to be out the door the second the shovel goes into the ground, (laughs) you know, but just as a highlight to like, we've got a plan, and that's great, but there's going to be a lot of pivots. Yeah, yeah. I still think, though, it's essential to have that plan. It's essential to have that that vision of where we're headed. Oh, you'd have chaos, chaos on a grand scale or small scale without it. Absolutely. You and I have talked a little bit about like vocational purpose and stuff like that. What, what advice would you give to people who are searching for that right now? Maybe who haven't ever articulated a vision of where they are heading. I would say to anybody early on that having a doing your homework on you know what your end game may be. You're not going to get it right out the gate. You're not going to get it in five years. You probably won't get it in 10. So do your homework on the steps you have to take to get there because I think it's very easy early on in your career to start you know, to take whatever you can get your hands on and kind of go from here and kind of go from there. And all of a sudden you've, you've built a good background, but you've not built the background you need to get where you want to go. Kind of, again, relating back to that plan of you had a bunch of here in the moment opportunities and you took them and maybe they're still the right ones. Sure. You know, I think another thing to understand early on is who has the power. You know, that's what I tell sometimes the graduate program at Wayne State has um, people who've graduated back to talk to the new class. And I always tell them, you've all been drawn to planning for one reason or the other. But the fact of the matter is that unless you unless you really love ordinance language, and I guarantee nobody does, <laughs> you know, you need to figure out what it is you want to do with your planning degree and then figure out who has the power to do it because it's probably not planners. Um, so I think that could apply for any career or, you know, where's the power? Because you're going to have to go there and get it because it's going to be easier for you to go get it than it is for you to try to change the system. Sure. You know, it's a noble cause, but it if you change the system in 80 years on this on this green planet, then 
good for you. You know, you accomplish something, but you won't reap the reward of it. Um, as you get older, you know, I'm, I'm at a certain crossroads myself with trying to decide what my end game is. Um, you know, I'm, I, I have a certain background that could very easily pigeonhole me into doing the same thing until the day I call it a day and that's not what I want to do. So I'm kind of in the midst of trying to figure out what, what, what's the right next step to grow, but also not get stagnant, you know, and doing the same thing. Um, I would say you just have to, you have to have patience and and understand that it's it's likely not going to go exactly the way that you want it to go but that's not a bad thing and that you you can't you can't quit and it sounds really cliche but i only say it to just even if your motivation is even if you have greater motivations than just strictly surviving, surviving requires diversity, adaptability. Like you have to keep an open mind. There's no such thing as doing the same thing for 30 years anymore and calling it a day. For sure. You know, you will, you will be obsolete. If someone's just starting out or if someone's 10 years or 20 years or 30 years into a career, you know, how you adapt and change looks different, but um, setting out those goals and taking the next right step that's going to move you in that particular direction, recognizing it's not an overnight kind of deal. Yeah. You're either on your way up or you're on your way out. You know, for me, it's at the point at every position that I've had at the point in which I felt, felt I stopped growing that I stopped climbing a ladder and not necessarily from the perspective of title or compensation, but from responsibility and learning when it plateaued, that was always, I've always resisted the feeling. I've always said, well, well, maybe I, maybe a little bit of this, a little bit of that, but, but time proves to me, nope, you've plateaued. So it's, it's time. And whether I've been comfortable with that or I haven't nine times out of 10, I haven't, but I've always said, I can't fight this, right? Like, yes, I'm incredibly uncomfortable in, in the prospect of having to change careers or do this or do that, but what's, what's the alternative, right? You're on your way up or you're on your way out. And I don't want to be on my way out. Not yet. I think that's true. Jeez. I think that's true in our family life and in our work life and in church, certainly, you know, um, I've been a part of a lot of different churches and in my experience, they are either growing or declining. Plateau is a myth. Yeah. If, 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 if a church thinks, Oh no, we're, we're about, you know, the same as we were five years ago or 10 years ago or whatever, no, you're either changing and adapting and growing and, and reaching new folks or you're not. And I think that's true even in our spiritual lives that, that we are, um, we're growing or we're declining. We're drawing closer to God or becoming more aware of God's presence or um, we are becoming less aware of God's presence. It's not that God goes anywhere. But um, our our awareness changes. Yeah, Matteo, I'm curious what what brought you to church in general, 
and what brought you and your family here to Berkeley first? <clears throat> so I, I did not grow up with, um, with religion as a mainstay in my family. It wasn't frowned upon. Um, but my dad was brought up strict Catholic and, you know, it always made the joke that, you know, by 19, he had all of us covered. He'd been to church so much that we, we don't know one needs to go anymore because <laughs> I've gone so much. And then my mom actually attended, um, this church as a kid, but sparingly because my grandfather was the head of neurosurgery at Beaumont and, you know, that lifestyle is on call and you never know if you're going to get a Sunday. So I think my parents kind of took the approach with my brother and I that, that religion had played different, had different influences in their lives. Ones that they felt they would rather leave for my brother and I to discover ourselves and decide how we wanted in our families you know, but, you know, ask a 16 year old, a license, you want to go to church? No, I don't want to go to church, <laughs> especially sure. if it hadn't played a role in my life prior. Again, never, never presented in negative fashion, but, but not part of our childhood. Yeah. Um, Jessica's family, on the other hand, uh, she was raised uh, in the Christian reform church and not, I, I wouldn't be the expert to talk about it, but in people's general understanding of CRC, she was not raised in the strictest of CRCs. Um, but, you know, Sunday was a day where there was church and, you know, dinners started with, you know, a reading from uh, the Bible and things of that nature. Uh, so actually, after about two years of dating, when Jessica and I both felt that, you know, this we, that we think this is going to work and we do want to get married, we had the conversation about what role would religion play <clears throat> in our family's lives, because obviously in her family, it was a very important thing and it was important to her. And in my family, it's not that it wasn't important, but it wasn't, uh, wasn't essential. It wasn't essential. Um, and so it was, it was interesting. Like we had talked about, you know, okay, would the kids be baptized and would they go to private school or public school? Cause she went to private school. Uh, would we go to church every Sunday? If we went to church every Sunday, what type of church would we go to? Um, and so, we kind of came to a general understanding about certain things. Um, and then when we had our first child, Avery, um, the, the importance of it for Jessica became uh, very prominent. And so we decided to try, you know, and I had been to different types of churches and she had been to different types of churches and our marriage, I would say, or our, our, uh, our wedding uh, was non-denominational from the perspective of how it was done. Mm -hmm. um, but when it, when it came time, you know, I was familiar with the Episcopal church. I was familiar with Methodist. Um, and those were the types of churches that I wanted to try because I, to be honest, I needed a certain amount of flexibility because I, I get uncomfortable in certain types of services. I, I'm not comfortable listening to people, in my opinion, talking for God uh, as opposed to about God. I think those are two incredibly different things. Sure. And so I was somewhat familiar with Methodist and Episcopal and kind of 
related them somewhat with that ideology. And this was a Methodist church and we live two blocks away from here. So you can't go wrong, at least if we're trying. So we started coming to services before before the transition under Birmingham Methodists. Okay. Um, and so we were, we, and, and we started coming regularly. Uh, we, we brought our daughter, Avery, and I forget the pastor at the time, but you know, they were, everyone was very welcoming. Um, you know, it's kind of funny. You had talked about churches on the way up or on the way out. And I know at that time, Berkeley Methodist in that, um, in that setup was kind of in a transition. Yeah. And so for those who are listening and are, and don't know, uh, there has been a Methodist church in Berkeley since the 1920s. Um, the congregation that had been here was uh, on the decline and had realized that they were kind of losing touch with the community. Um, but rather than eke out their existence, they had the courage to um, really die to give birth to something new. They chose to close uh, and gave the building and remaining assets over to Birmingham first, who had been looking to go multi-site. And um, my family and I were brought on as a part of that process to help Birmingham um, launch the Berkeley First campus. So we're one church, multiple locations. Mateo and his family were involved um, at the tail end of yeah. of Berkeley First United Methodist Church, and then got back involved after we launched as as Berkeley First um, as as the new church campus. Yeah, and the <clears throat> and in both iterations, we've always felt very welcomed. We've we've always been very comfortable with the message. Um, I think, if I'm not mistaken, I believe Avery was the last baptism before the closure and Brock was the first baptism after the reopen. That's right. Um, so, so again, so both having the church be welcoming in both formats. I mean, it, it was good for both of us. I mean, you know, again, I just, I can get pretty uncomfortable pretty quickly in certain t religious conversations and um, uh, certain rigid views about things. And the Methodist church, as I know it, has always been very open to conversation about things and open to iteration. And, um, and I think at the end of the day, what I, what I can appreciate the most about the Methodist church here and, and my family being a part of it is the agree to disagree. If that's what it comes to. Um, I think that's, that is universal in life. Um, but something that I think is paramount in religion. I mean, there's just, there's so many of us and for everyone to believe the exact same thing all the time seems, I mean, mathematically sure. it's improbable. <laughs> you, you couldn't do it. Absolutely. And for yeah. me, so, and just to follow just so that you know, cause I, you're such a big part of this is I, I control my destiny when it comes to my religion and, and my beliefs, my children are at an age where they're incredibly influenced, right? And so that's the difference for me is like, I can just say like, well, I don't believe any of that. And, and that's me and my thing, but my kids are in a different position where it's like, well, they may believe it or they may not believe it, but I'm comfortable with them being here and, and, and being taught the things that they're being taught because of that flexibility, right? So that I can have the conversation with my kids to say, well, some people do believe that some people believe this, you owe it to yourself to take the time to figure out what you believe. Um, 
but the foundation that provided here, I'm totally comfortable with. I mean, I remember at one point in time saying that my kids are not going to Sunday school. I want them to sit next to me through the whole thing so I can hear what they're being. I can hear what they're hearing. And if there's something that I yeah, don't think something is, you disagree with or you want to interpret for them ex- after the fact. Right. But that's never been the case here. I'm, when the kids go off to Sunday school, I've, there's not a worry in my mind about it. I did not grow up United Methodist. And one of the things that drew me to this denomination and one of the things that was essential as we were planting this church campus was um, the notion that what unites us in Christ is greater than anything that divides us. And um, we not only are we not going to see eye to eye on everything, we actually consider that a strength. Um, We welcome diversity of opinion, um, diversity even of practice, you know, in many ways, and um, believe that we truly are better together. And as our kids grow up, um, you know, we encourage them not just to, you know, memorize certain statements of faith, um, but to wrestle with them and um, grow as a result and to ask questions along the way. Um, God is not... offended by questions. God is not put off by doubts. It's, it's good to ask and think and question and wrestle. What do you think are some of the essential elements of creating community, whether that's, you know, church community, whether that's, you know, essential infrastructure of, of a city or whatever. But I, it seems to me like so much of what you do, so much of where your heart is at is really in, um, creating vibrant communities and vibrant spaces. Um, What do you think are some of the essential elements to that? Yeah. You could answer that question on several different levels. Um, I mean, people are going to make or break anything, whether it's, it's, you know, something that's real in front of you or whether it's a a theology or whatever it might be, like people are going to make or break anything. And, And I think, you know, kind of what I said is, is the, the willingness of, of agree to disagree, right? The, the willingness to accept the fact that for the most part, like we're all here, we're, we're all humans, right? And at their core function, all of us seek the same things, you know, whether it be shelter or um, love or, you know, food, food. I mean, they, all that kind of stuff. Um, I think being able to relate to the fact that we are, more similar than we, than we think we are and that differences are not a a weakness, but like you said, a strength, you know, um, I think that's always important. I mean, I know for me, I try to understand that in other people, regardless of whether it's a personal relationship or professional relationship is like, what motivates you? How do you communicate? How can I better understand that? Even if I don't agree with it, um, and it's, it's served me incredibly well. I mean, I, I tell people all the time, I wish I was good at math, but unfortunately I am a people person. And so that I have like, that's what I'm good at. Um, you know, when it comes to physical space, I think, you know, just the, I guess I would say that the, again, considering that, that, that something as a part of another thing that is much bigger, right? Nothing is a standalone this, that, or the other. So being able to design in that manner, I think it makes it more welcoming, gives it that more authentic community feel. Um, You know, as opposed to just kind of one-off things, again, trying to 
understand the physical environment and what people are, you know, comfortable with and how they interact. I mean, one of one of the studies I remember from my graduate program was that they I can't remember what it was, but they had people walk from point A to point B. Mm, it, it escapes me, but basically the theme was is that of a mile distance, people walking across concrete of like continuous parking lots. Like they never actually like very few people made it the full mile before there was something in the in the study that triggered them no longer being comfortable or wanting to do it as opposed to walking a mile of a of an authentic urban city block. And mm. like everybody completed the task. You know, like but we're not you know, that's that's a subconscious interaction. That's very important. Right. These people chose like, they don't want to walk across a mile of a sea of concrete. But walking past city windows, walking across other people, walking past them, like whether we all, whether or not we want to admit it, we all need community. I think we just have a, we just make the decision of how much community do we want, right? Do I want a lot, right? Do I want a little? Um, But that's, those are the types of things that I think that can influence people on the physical level and and on the, the individual emotional level. I think it's just the fact that we're really all here for very similar things and kind of an an acceptance of that might create community in and of itself. You know, for instance, we, we organized a block party a few years ago and I guarantee you not everybody in that block has the same political affiliations. I guarantee you not everyone in that block has the same religious affiliations or, you know, uh, same colors, whatever you want to, whatever it is that you want to, we all sat down. We all had a great time. I mean, that to me is the point, you know. Any other closing thoughts or words of wisdom for our listeners today? Oh, I. Uh, <laughs> I guess in the in the grand scheme of things, I mean, it's just important to be thankful, and it's it's almost ironic for me to be able to say that because I, you could, I could mean that in a religious sense. I could mean that in a non-religious sense, but you know, I, there is not a day that goes by that I am not thankful for Jessica, you know, because without her, I wouldn't have my three kids without her. I wouldn't have my sanity. And there's a whole other story behind that, which (laughs) Makes that the whole use of the word sanity very literal, <laughs> but you know, w- without her, I wouldn't have anything. And and that's the same that goes over, you know, my mom and my dad. You know, like I've got five people in a thousand square foot bungalow. I we are pulling our hair out, but every night at dinner, we're thankful. You know, I've got I've got a job that you know, as I'd mentioned before the podcast today, today has been one of the days, but my paycheck cleared. Right. You know, I, I just it's it's a very it's very humbling and it's very self-centering, regardless of what it is you're thankful for and who you're thankful to for it. I think being thankful is uh, is a good grounding, uh, you know, and a good day to day practice that'll keep you. It, it doesn't make life easier, um, but it keeps it in perspective. Mateo, thanks so much for being a part of this podcast today. It really is 
a joy to be the church with you and your family. Yeah, no, I this was great, and I uh, I would throw a thank you, a huge thank you back to you, because like I said, I, hopefully you've you understand the, the the role that you know you've played in my family and and the role of this church that you've had a big part of has played in our family. So you know, thank you as well. That concludes this episode of Church Folks. Thanks for joining us. You can find out more about Birmingham and Berkeley First on our websites, fumcbirmingham.org and berkeleyfirst.org. Take some time this week to share your story, listen to the stories of others, and look for those points of intersection with the greatest story ever told, the continually unfolding story of God's love in Jesus Christ. Peace.